0: Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan. One that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hey, everyone, it's me, Chris M. Allport, director of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Over the holiday, we released a four-part series with a very special guest. In case you missed any of the segments of SSDL's Very Jerry Christmas, well, now's your chance to watch all the episodes together. No excuses. What else are you going to do? We're all in quarantine anyway. So grab some popcorn and beverage of your choice. Settle in and watch Denny's exclusive interview with the one and only Jerry West, recorded on November 9th, 2020, only on Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. as Jerry's friend and Denny's cousin, Wayne Boley, knocks down the traditional 74-28 shot. Way to go, Wayne. Way to My childhood was entirely different from the way sports icon Jerry West grew up. The first time I ever saw Jerry in person, I was eight years old. My godfather had taken me to a Lakers practice in 1972 at Loyola University. Bill Sharman was coaching, Wilt Chamberlain, Gail Goodrich, and Jerry West were the three stars on the team. That year the Lakers would go on to win the first NBA championship in Los Angeles and it would be the only NBA title of Jerry West's career. I'm Denny Lennon. Welcome to our four-part video podcast that delves into the life of Jerry West I think you'll find fascinating. This interview was recorded on November 9 of 2020 when my cousin Wayne Boley invited Jerry West to come over for a sit-down interview in my garage studio, exclusively on Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Looking back now, I can see how clearly my 1970s, warm, family-oriented Southern California upbringing was comparatively different to Jerry West's formative years in West Virginia some 20 years earlier. If you think of West Virginia, you can picture the backdrop of the Shenandoah River or the Blue Ridge Mountains contrasted by the orange and yellow leaves falling from the autumn trees. But the real backbone of the entire Appalachian region was the coal mining industry, blackened and covered in soot. While profitable for its owners, coal was less than hospitable and generous to the men who broke their backs living in poverty while they were pulling black diamond out of the mountain. Perhaps that's why Jerry's father, employed by the coal industry, seemed much less of a dad to him. Jerry had made it quite clear over the years that he did not grow up in a happy home. Maybe his father stole his ability to trust at an early age, or maybe his mom maintained emotional distance, or perhaps both. So Jerry West turned inward to find his focus, always having a goal. He knew that goal involved putting the ball through a hoop. The poverty that encompassed Jerry's upbringing really left him feeling isolated. The nearest town of Charleston was some 20 miles away. So standing in his backyard, Jerry would look to the mountaintop across the valley. His future seemed just out of reach, but he knew there was a better world on the other side. At age 12, he just didn't know what that was or how to get there. To Jerry West, everything that was good was in his older brother. On June 8, 1951, when Jerry was just 13, running home at a good clip that evening, someone simply shouted out to him that his brother had died. The shocking news devastated Jerry. Sergeant David West had become one of General MacArthur's casualties of the Korean War. The Forgotten War, maybe left to obsolete history books, was never forgotten by Jerry. Cut down at 21, the casualty of Sergeant West left a hole in the younger West's heart that never healed. Even after David's death, the letters delayed by months from overseas still came. Keep it basketball and be a good Joe, David wrote. And so Jerry did. That following summer, Jerry grew six inches and he focused on one thing, putting the ball through the hoop. He had a goal. And by 1956, Jerry West led East Bank High School to the state championship.
1: It was really probably my first time that I had ever felt like maybe I'm a little bit special.
0: Nothing like that had ever happened to East Bank. His play was so outstanding, they renamed the entire town of East Bank to West Bank for a day. Oh, you're playing uh, golf today?
1: Yeah, um, i got a bunch of old guys that uh, contribute to the bank account, so <laughs> even at my age, you have to go out there and keep on fooling them, okay? Yeah, you do.
0: <laughs> yes, you do. I, um, I One of the things that came to mind recently, because uh, I read your book, West by West, and, a couple times, and it's, it's, it's great. I really enjoyed it. Um, but one of the things that caught me in there, especially during this time, was you, you said one of your regrets might have been you might have had a, a sliver of an opportunity to run for governor and that you thought that that might have been something you you would have enjoyed. Do you think that's still the case, or is it such a climate that it's difficult?
1: Well, you know, the climate's always difficult, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, this world is never the same. Um, You know, people go along and everything seems to be running smoothly, and all of a sudden something comes up, either here in this country or some other place in the world which changed the dynamics of people who are supposed to be thinking on a higher level. Mm. Um, I'm a huge reader, yeah. and I particularly like to read to learn. And to me, history is something that uh, I can get never get tired of uh, reading about. And at that point in my life, um, you know, I was sort of well aimless would pro- probably be a pretty good word because I'd finished playing basketball, and that was the thing that always drove me to try to uh, to try to satisfy my own competitive. A part of my life and you know it's I love West Virginia okay sure. uh, I really haven't changed that much except I've lived here in Southern California it's made me talk more than I've ever talked in my life yeah. uh, sometime to the point that you uh, feel like you're a recording uh, you don't talk about anything serious because you're talking about basketball basketball mm-hmm. players or particular people that are involved in the world of sports and uh, West Virginia is a state that um, it needs help. It really needs help. Uh, it used to be a, a, a state where people could get a job working for the coal mine. Um, and frankly, uh, it was almost like if you had manual labor, you could earn a very, very good living, even though uh, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Yeah. Uh, damaging to your health, dangerous. Right. Um, but also, for years and years in families, these families grew up and the only thing they had in mind was go to high school, mm-hmm. get out of high school, go to work in the coal mines, and their families replicated the same thing. Mm. Um, that's not something that happened in my life. Even though my father worked for a coal mine, he didn't go in the coal mine. Mm. And uh, you know they'd go on strikes constantly every three years, so any wage concession, they might have gathered. were gone because they were three months they would strike. And I was intrigued because my best interest was for the people of the state of West Virginia. It was not a self-interest at all. And um it was intrigued. But I just probably at that point in my career I was probably too competitive to take the competitive side out of it and have a broader picture of what was best for everyone. Uh,
0: not for me, but everyone else. Mm. You know, uh, it's it's interesting. A lot of people don't know uh, what it was like to grow up when you did. But one of the things I found interesting that I, I could really relate to was the solace you enjoyed in basketball. And I love that, too. I love being able to take my ball and go dribble, go find a junior high or a high school or any outdoor court and just shoot. And so I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but there are times where I would go and I was Jerry West playing the Knicks. <laughs> And that was right what I did when I was little. I was wondering, it made me think, when when you were shooting around on your own, which you did a lot, did you have something in your mind? Did you have an imaginary game going? Or did you just shoot to make a hundred? Or how how did that work for you?
1: Well, first of all, um, basketball was a refuge for me, away from the uh, childhood that uh, I wouldn't prescribe to anyone for uh, for any child. escape from a place where I just felt like I was a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no uh, affection in my family. Um, And something that I think all of us uh, need and desire. And uh, when you feel like you're, you know, a displaced person, Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think, and if you find things in your life that can give you uh, a respite, from this ugly part of your life, that was it. It was no other reason uh, except to watch the ball go through the hoop. And the one thing that people um, of all ages, regardless of what it is, if you can see yourself making improvement, uh, you're going to not only take a greater interest, how can I get better, uh, you're gonna start to play mental games. And I certainly played a lot of mental games. And only after I got older and I was able to <clears throat> be able to make shots on a more consistent basis. And when I first started out, you know, I prope- I couldn't even shoot the ball right. up at the basket. I was so little. And, uh, uh, you, you know, you talked about going to places where you could find um, a place to shoot basketball. Yep. And in your own mind, your imagination, you yep. can be anyone you want to be. Okay. There was no... Basketball players at that point in time, that I even knew oh. about nothing. It was just something I picked up. And an old adage: if you throw a ball to a dog, he's going to chase it. Well, I was that dog chasing that <laughs> basketball. And uh, so in my life, uh, that has I'm still I'm still chasing that basketball. Yeah. But it was a respite for me for the, the it's kind of yeah. what I felt like going home. I didn't
0: feel very good about going. You, um, you know, you're, you're moving towards high school and stuff. The high school scene, I'm always fascinated with. We get a lot of that mythology out of Indiana, but I think it probably happened in West Virginia and Ohio and Kentucky, and you're bordering states in the same way about high school basketball. Was there high school basketball players that were a little older than you that you looked up to that you thought, you know, maybe I could do that? Not really.
1: Not no? really. I was pretty uh, focused on... Myself, how I could be a better person. Mm. How I could particularly feel better about myself? Sure. I, and I think when you feel uh, like uh, you're not worth very much in your life, uh, it probably is the worst thing that can happen to anyone, mm. and particularly a child. Um, it's almost a sense of abandonment. Yeah. And when you feel that when you feel that way, you carry that with you everywhere you go. Yeah. And only when <laughs> only when for doing something that other people think is attractive. Uh, do you start to s- start to question, why do they think I'm attractive? Because I'm a nice kid or a good kid? Or because i got something to offer? And I'm talking about when I got to high school and my career took off and all these people wanted to recruit me. It wasn't because I was a good kid. It was not. Right. Um, it was because everyone That's thought cool. I had a different kind of talent. Mm. And, you know, the promises made, uh, uh, money, uh, financial inducements uh, where I would make four times what my father made in mm. uh, in a month, or three times yeah, what my father confusing. made in a month. It was, it was hard for me to comprehend. And at that time, I didn't say a word to anyone. Yes sir, no sir, that was it. I didn't talk to anyone um, except maybe a friend or something. I was just deathly quiet. Um, a lot of scar tissue along the way, mm. uh, a loss of a brother who was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that changed my life forever. Um, sure. It made you really wonder what's important. Is it you or your skill? Ooh. And obviously it was my skill that people were excited about. And um, I often wonder you know, if I would have gone to school and just been an average player or a bench player what my life would have turned out. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen that way. Right. And fortunately for me, it changed my life forever. And also my thinking about how I can maybe contribute back to society and particularly as you get older. yeah, um, I think I have a mission today to try to help people, um, uh, to try to give as much as I can give where uh, it would be me personally, or if I have the m- enough money to give to some cause, that makes me feel good. I'm going to do it, but it's going to be anonymously. It's not going to be me yeah. putting my name out there uh, uh, for personal applause. That, that I, I don't through. do things like that.
0: No, that comes through clear. You can you, you know you can feel that in whether I've uh, watched you in the media or, or different areas. People always you know you you have that cred within your community of doing it for the right reasons. Did you get a sense of um like family or brotherhood when you're on teams when, when you're in high school? Did that, you know, did you, like, cause I know as a coach of, of youth groups, a lot of times some of these kids, you know, they don't get what they would like at home, but they do have this sense of, of friendship that fills some of the void.
1: Well, you know, at that point in time, uh, you know, I, I want you to go back in time, okay? Mm, sure. If you might, we, we didn't have a car. Right. Never went on a vacation. Uh, I went to a consolidated high school where kids went from 28 miles around to go to high school. And how in the world can you com- communicate with anyone if you don't have a telephone? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a car? It's so, it makes you so isolated. And it, there's also a reticence to, uh, to revert back to who you were quiet. But I had one guy, and I'll never forget his name. He's still alive, and we talk every once in a while. His name was Kenny Bilbo. Yeah. He had a car. And he was like my chauffeur. Nice. He drove me everywhere, but you remember, 28 miles here, 28 miles there, everyone was spread out in these small little mining yeah. communities. Yeah. And a big day for me was to go to Charleston, West Virginia. Um, and he was my, he was my uh, chauffeur. So yeah. he would pick me up and take me places. And I will never forget his kindness extended to me where otherwise <clears throat> I would be doing one or two things at that point in my life. I would either be fishing, mm-hmm. hunting, and obviously basketball was becoming a more important element of my life. So um, yeah. uh, there are just certain things you remember about uh, not being able to uh, go places. Uh, you feel so isolated, very much like we... Do today because of the, this mm. virus. Um, yeah, it's not natural to do that. No, it's not, and so it makes you a different kind of person.
0: Um, one of the th- things that you got an opportunity—I think—might have been your junior year or something. You got identified, by, I think, by the American Legion. You got to go to the Boy State.
1: Yeah, but it's really—it's more than identified. Okay, it's really about a lot of different things. Okay, uh, and your schoolwork. Uh, mm. Uh, kind of your status in the school and nice. I always used to laugh uh, when I I got this thing boy state and I'm thinking oh my God what the heck is this okay yeah. and if I would go there I probably wouldn't say 10 words okay that's how quiet I was but I did uh, I did something did occur there at Boy State um, probably the biggest disappointment I ever had as a basketball player was when I was a junior in high school. And uh, they had an all-conference team uh, where I was the only unanimous choice right. on the whole team. And I had worked so hard to achieve something that was pretty easy for me because I've always been competitive. Uh, and I was anxiously awaiting to see what the all-state team would bring. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I received an honorable mention, not even sixth team or third team, honorable mention, and two of the kids on this conference, all-conference team, made the All-State team. And it was probably the most devastated I've ever felt in my life, when it pertained to my basketball career. Um, And during that period of time, um, I decide I'll, I'll go to Boise. I didn't even want to go, to be honest with you. I go up there, and there's like three kids that had made the All-State team, okay? Two of them. Two All-State teams. uh, Two of them made the All-State team. I go up there, and suddenly a basketball appears, okay? So they were choosing sides, and I was like the last one selected, okay? (laughs) And then at the end of the week, I was selecting the players. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Turner. It's probably... The most confident I've ever felt oh, in my great. life, wow. uh, where I knew I was better than these guys. Okay, I would never say that to anyone, but I knew I was better, and I couldn't <laughs> wait till my senior year got there, and uh, and it turned out to be uh, I was it was justified that heck yeah, uh, we went to all state. I so, mean, we I, I was the only uh, I was all state led to. Yeah, Stayed in scoring, stayed in rebounding. Uh, we won the state championship. Just won the state championship. And uh, it was probably, I didn't realize the scope of it uh, because when it happened, uh, I'd fouled out of the championship game. And we were way ahead. Oh, wow. And I didn't even play the last quarter. And I, think I scored 39 points in, the, in three quarters. Three quarters, and
0: uh, <laughs> But I was sitting there
1: actually waiting this clock to go oh, down so okay. we wouldn't <laughs> lose, right? And we won. And I went to East Bank High School. Yep. And after we won uh, the state championship, um, <laughs> they named they named uh, the, the town the, West Bank. West Bank, One yeah.
0: day <laughs> each, each year, okay? <laughs> um, That's something that no longer occurs, by the I, way. <laughs> I wonder if your last name were like Horowitz if they would have uh, rolled with that or, well, I mean, knows? you've been okay if it was north or south. Well, who knows, yeah. <laughs> who knows. Uh, it was just
1: a quirk and... Uh, that's, that, it, no, I mean, that's gotta way, be something for a it was 17-year-old. Embarrassing. It was very embarrassing at that point in time. Yeah, that's a I, did, that's I didn't a lot. even know how to deal with it. Uh, you know, people uh, coming up to you and it was really probably my first time that I had ever felt like maybe I'm a little bit special. Yeah. Uh, but when you go home after that, you know you're not special.
0: I have always loved the Olympic Games. The humanity displayed through international competition has always been compelling and inspiring to me. I felt proud when I joined the AAU in 1994. The Amateur Athletic Union was founded in 1888 to standardize and codify sports in the United States. The AAU subsequently has led our Olympic movement for nearly a century. Jerry West has stated time and again that his most valued award, and he has many, is his Olympic gold medal from the 1960 Rome Games. At just 22, West co-captain to the USA Olympic team was Cincinnati's Oscar Robertson, the only other amateur player in the country that was his equal. Other American athletes competing in Rome that year read like a list of American heroes. Decathlon gold medal winner Rafer Johnson, sprinter Wilma Rudolph who won three gold medals, and Cassius Clay, an AAU national boxing champion that took the Olympic gold medal in the light heavyweight division. Clay would, of course, change his name to Muhammad Ali in 1964. Jerry found himself in the midst of the world's greatest athletes, but he may have never made the Olympic team if it weren't for the support of a few people who took a keen interest in Jerry's success early in his collegiate days. After leading East Bank High School to the West Virginia State Championship in 1956, Jerry had multiple scholarship offers, but he never gave much consideration to any other school than West Virginia University. The following academic year, Jerry would begin his collegiate career as a mountaineer and head coach Fresh Shouse's basketball program in Morgantown. Three hours away from his isolated upbringing back in Shalin, Jerry was away from home more than he'd ever been, and feelings of homesickness quickly settled in. He took a room at 65 Beechhurst, a boarding house for West Virginia young athletes run by the 40-something pharmacist, Ann But just as freshman year got underway, Jerry's feelings of insecurity led him to return home. Home wasn't much, but at least it was familiar. Jerry West might not have thought much about himself in that moment, but Coach Shouse had other plans. He had another underclassman find Jerry and get him back to Morgantown. As affable as Jerry was introverted, Willie Akers jumped in a car and headed to Shaylin, where he found Jerry playing games on his front porch with his younger sister. Jerry and Willie became inseparable friends. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Once back at 65, Beechhurst, Ann DiNardi's empathy allowed Jerry to finally start feeling a sense of home in his heart. In terms of both love and tough love, Anne fulfilled a role of surrogate mother, and Willie was like a brother. Before he knew it, Jerry was engaging in the pop culture of 1956. He and Willie were big fans of Marilyn Monroe's Academy Award nominated bus stop in which the protagonist, Beauregard Decker, likely reminded Jerry of himself, frightened at the idea of talking to girls. By sophomore year, Coach Fred Schaus wanted Jerry to wear jersey number 33, but that was the number that Hot Rod Hunley had wore the year before, and Jerry didn't like Hunley's flashy game. Jerry was a player who based himself in fundamentals and hard work. So Jerry declined number 33. This marked a seminal moment for Jerry West. He took control of his career and he chose number 44 instead. That was the number that football great Jim Brown had worn at Syracuse. To say Jerry had a successful career in Morgantown would be an understatement. He was quite frankly the greatest player the university ever had. In his junior year, Jerry led the Mountaineers to the only tournament championship final appearance in school history. Losing by a single point to a Pete Newell coached Cal team, West was named the most outstanding player of that NCAA tournament, an accomplishment that's never been replicated. Pete Newell and the Cal Bears were the 1959 winners of the NCAA championship, but Coach Newell did not protest the selection of West as most outstanding player. Newell would go on to coach the 1960 USA basketball team that would compete in the Rome Olympic Games. So after Jerry's senior year during the Olympic trials and still unsure of his status, Jerry became reassured by Coach Newell that either both of them were going to Rome or they're both staying home. The great Oscar Robertson of Cincinnati, Adrian Smith of Kentucky, and Jerry West of West Virginia, the United States Olympic team. Jerry regards his Olympic gold medal as the greatest athletic achievement of his life and Pete Newell as one of the great influences and mentors. We all know you as number 44, but I saw some pictures and it looked like you had number 12 at East Bank and also number 42. Is that just you going up the ranks of the like?
1: Well, you know, it's really weird. Uh, uh, You know, numbers are, I don't even remember numbers. I think yeah. in the Olympic games, uh I don't know what uh, number three, baby. They only it's one through whatever, okay. Yeah. It's not you can't have a number. And uh, uh, mm. but when I got to college they wanted me to wear thirty three and uh, a player who played there was kinda in West Virginia legendary figure, uh Rod Rod Hunley. Hot Rod, Hot Rod Hot Hunley, Rod Hunley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh they wanted to wear me uh me to wear his number. I would not do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was not like him any way, shape, or form. I didn't want to play like him. Uh, I watched him turn the ball over. Uh, so, 44 was the number that I, I had, and uh was my number throughout my career. And that became
0: your thing. Now, you were as close to Lexington or Columbus as you were to Morgantown, technically. Did, did any of those, did Ohio State or Kentucky recruit you or, 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 or you just, West Virginia seemed like what you wanted to do well, because of where you grew up?
1: You know, honestly, I had so many recruiting offers, even from Ivy League schools. Wow. Um, uh, but um, I visited um, only a couple places. Okay. Uh, University of Kansas, I mm. flew from Charleston, West Virginia. First time I've ever been in an airplane in my yeah, life. Yeah. It was a, a, tw- a, a single engine plane. Oh boy. <laughs> and I went there and met the coach of Kansas and also a big Kansas booster. And they had Wilt Chamberlain there. And uh, oh. uh, so we had a long talk and I went oh, back wow. and uh, then I went to visit University of, um, uh, University of Maryland. Okay. Uh, and I only did it because my, one of the guys who was my lifelong friend still, still with us today, Willie Akers. Um, yeah uh he, some reason he wanted to go and we went over there right uh, had a bunch of real big guys and this was really kind of weird and at that point in time you know this wasn't like staying at the four seasons no. or any <laughs> yeah. of these upper crust hotels and we stayed in the arena where they played the game Just like in a so or something at two o'clock in the morning magically <laughs> A basketball appeared <laughs> and the first day they were there all they did was pay a, a lot of attention to these other guys okay and you know here's this quiet kid from west virginia there <laughs> and after that after that the next day i don't think they talked to any of those other guys they were talking, solely <laughs> they were to talking me. To you. oh you got to go here you got to go there <laughs> you got to go there and so obviously somebody had been watching mm. um but um and yeah. I had a lot of offers, Kentucky, uh, I just okay. didn't want to go anywhere except West Virginia University. Uh, yeah. I just felt it was home and, um, you know, uh, that's where I belong.
0: And Maryland I went there. Maryland would have confused me. I never knew what a Terrapin was. So I would have said "I." Well, you know. you're not from back east. Yeah, I'm not from back so east. If you go, you can find them in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you just, don't know about things where. like that. I <laughs> don't, no, no. Um, it's interesting, um, you, so I, I guess you, you're recruited by these other schools, but then you certainly had your opportunity to travel a little bit around at that time. I, I found the uh, story of Anne Denardi heartwarming because we all need people who take us in and guide us at some point in our life. And it seemed like she was a really important person in your life.
1: She was huge. She was my um, secondary mother. Yeah. Uh, She called me every name, little Italian lady, this tall, this big around. (laughs) And her sister looked identical to her, and they lived together. They were all basically never got married. And uh, they cared for me like I was their own. And I've never been called so many uh, horrible names in my life, uh, (laughs) by Anne in particular. But when I went there, there, uh, she probably saved me from leaving school. Yeah, I didn't want to be there. I was, you know, homesick for a, a, a town of nothing. Uh, I I didn't feel like I belonged. I had no ability to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. I had no social skills. Uh, I was so shy. If I'd go into a class, uh, I was even shy going into class. And a lot of people would say, "Oh, that's not true. That's not true." Well, that was me. Yeah. And um, but she convinced me that. Uh, I should stay. And then there was one other incident when I was there that uh, the, the coach then, who's now deceased, Fred Schaus, who was my coach here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. he called me in the office one day. And we had an undefeated uh, team as a, when I was a junior, and he mm-hmm. couldn't play as a freshman then. And we had an undefeated freshman team, too. And he called me in his office, and probably the lowest feeling of my life mm-hmm. uh, was after this conversation. He said to me, he said, you know, he said, we're gonna make a change in the starting line. Now we're undefeated. And he said, and I I just looked at him and I said, Why? He said, Well, we need more rebounding. And I said, Well, I'm a leading rebounder in the team. Right. We had a we had 6 11 guy by the name of Lloyd Share, who's now deceased, uh, who was an all American candidate. And um I had more rebounds than him. <laughs> and then he was, well, we need more scoring. And I said, well, I said, I'm also the leading scorer on the team. It's a, <laughs> <is> a conversation. <laughs> and then he started talking about defensive play. And that was that was my skill yeah. that, that was there from the time I was a freshman to, to throughout my whole career. And most people really just talked about the scoring part no. of it. And I said, well, Fred, I said, you know, I guard everyone's best score right. regardless of what size they are <laughs> and so was I left this? there I left there and I went back to this little little place 65 Beachhurst Avenue which is yeah. now Jerry West Boulevard in Morgantown <laughs> West Virginia and, wow. si- and this little house was not there and there was really? always athletes particularly basketball players that yep. stayed there There's like four little bedrooms there okay <clears throat> and I told her <clears throat> I said Ad, I'm going to quit school I said I'm mm-hmm. going home and I told her, uh, I said, I'm going. And uh, we had a long talk and it was one of those talks that uh, that only someone like her could have with me because I was just so hurt that he didn't even know who I was, Yeah. period. He did not know who I was. Yeah, he didn't know how to get um, to you. And it was probably the most awkward thing in my life and when I left there, when I left that meeting, I said, I can't play for this man ever again. I can't do it. And um, uh, some way, somehow, I went back and we had the number one team in the country that year. And uh, I, um, uh, I learned a huge lesson that day, OK? Yeah. Uh, about believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when no one else believed in you, and I didn't believe he believed in me, and he was the one who was begging me to come to school there. Yeah. And I said to myself I said to myself, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. But I stayed and endured a lot. Uh, never missed a game in college. Uh, a lot of huge disappointments, uh, very much as my pro- professional career. But that was a uh, telling moment. Uh, for Ann Denardi in my life. And she was like, um, she loved me to death. Uh, I always felt that I knew what love was when when she was around, when I didn't know what love was before.
0: I thought it was um, touching that you were able to you know, speak her name uh, in the White House when you got the Medal of Freedom. And she got, uh, there's many people, I bet, like her that help young people and guide them. And do it selflessly. and it was nice that she got got that moment. So the you know one of the things I, I like too is you mentioned it was Roy Williams was your East Banks coach, and that you you kind of always heard uh, his name in, in your head as far as defense and toughness. Is am I accurate on the name? Is, is that your? Well, high school he was
1: coach? Our, you know he was our uh, my high school coach. Okay, he yeah. Was, he's also the football coach, and um, he uh, he stressed defense. He really did, and uh, probably had something to do with. Him coaching football, football yeah. because I think everyone who coaches football teams, That's they want eight, a foundation nine, Where teams. They don't have to score outscore everyone some night. Mm-hmm. And in basketball, you know people see these marvelous players make shot after shot after shot. They don't do that every night. And so you need a foundation, and the foundation to keep you in games. Uh, when maybe you're not shooting well for three quarters, and all of a sudden the last quarter you're still close, you get it gone, you win the game. Um <laughs> You can't outscore teams every night. You have right. to beat them other ways. And you could, I think the key to it is to be an offensive team, a defensive team, a physical game, an offensive game. There are four or five elements that can keep you competitive if you have the right kind of players. Right. If you don't, you're going to lose those games because people lose confidence very fast, and particularly when when they don't win a lot. Winning breeds confidence.
0: Was the, um, was the Final Four in '59 the first time you met Pete Newell? Say you again now? The, the Final Four in uh, 1959. Was it the first time you met Pete Newell? I really didn't even meet him then. So I didn't did meet
1: get... him until we uh, had uh, uh, trials for the Olympic uh, okay. uh, Games in 1960. And uh, he was uh, he came to be someone that maybe I admired most yeah. as a coach and as a human being. This was an incredible, wonderful man. He was never deceptive. Mm. Um, you know, never told you anything you wanted to hear. He was honest, mm-hmm. and trust me, that's rare. Uh, and particularly in the NBA, there's so many people yeah. that are deceptive. Uh, I understand why it happens. Yeah. Uh, but it's not fun when you're dealing with someone who is not very sure of himself at all. Um, and uh, he's someone I came to love and admire in a, a, during his years that I knew him.
0: So I know you—you you, you had sixty was the Olympics, but fifty-nine you went to the Pan Am Games, and that was in um, Chicago, I think. And I was curious about the tryouts or the tryout procedure. It sounded like there was a round robin. There's AAU teams, Armed Service teams, no, something that like was, that.
1: No, that was not at all. That was a selected team. That okay? oh, was a selected team from but those, the, the Olympics. Were a different story. They had a lot of amateur basketball, and they had always won this tournament, okay, the amateur people. And people would say, well, how can amateurs beat the best uh, college players? Well, most of these amateurs work for people, Mm -hmm. these big companies, and they were all American players, but they went to school not to play professional basketball. And at that point in time, you made no money playing professional basketball. So these guys ended up having a career, <clears throat> and as I mentioned, um, the only time a amateur team had ever won that tournament was in 1960, and we won every game handily. Um, oh wow! Okay. Um, and he had whoever won, they had to select seven people off of that team. That's what it was. Okay. And um, so that was that. That was the way the Olympics worked then. Um, it wasn't like just getting invited, and you know ahead of time they're going to yeah. select what thirteen or fourteen professionals and one
0: and, okay. and one amateur who shouldn't shouldn't be on the team in the first place. I love the uh, the story of the sixty games. To me, you know, just looking back, uh, I love the Olympic Games, and that seemed like the last time before, you know, drugs became an issue with any of the countries. It seemed like it was a truly amateur experience for for most of the athletes. And also there seemed to be this um, spirit about those games in Rome. And, and I take it you feel the same way because I know you're, you're proud of your involvement in those games. And, and you've, you've mentioned that's your proudest moment was winning that gold medal.
1: Well, it was the proudest moment for me. And I, th- I think the biggest thing that made it for me is that there was so much going on in the world then, okay? There was the Cold War, yeah. the threat of nuclear war, the... Um, um, Racism, and this was a bunch of uh, people from all walks of life who happened to get together and had one. Of, it one of the greatest teams ever at that yeah. point in time. <laughs> what, a, what a team! Um, and to walk through these people who were professionals uh, was pretty amazing experience, and I never forget uh, <sighs> the speech that Pete Newell gave before the last game. Everything is cumulative points, in the Olympics, okay? yeah. <laughs> and we were going to play the Brazilian team. Everyone thought it was going to be USA against Russia. That didn't work. We beat the Russians, and the first probably the best something. game I played against, was against the Russians. Yeah. You, know, you just hated, at that point in time, you hated them. But frankly, I probably hated every player I played against. I <laughs> yeah, like right. right. And it was just, just something I, 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 I like these people away from the game, and I'm talking about in the NBA. But on the court, I didn't like them, Okay, (laughs) It was my, I guess, Mm self-motivation. But uh, during that period of time, uh, as I say, there was just so much going on. But Pete's very stirring uh, pre-game talk against Brazil. He says, guys, we can't lose this game by 71 points, Okay, 71 points. (laughs) And I think we ended up winning about 55 or something like that. But this was truly a great team. Uh, we didn't play <laughs> half the half yeah. the game. I bet I didn't play 20 minutes of the game, 20, 22, 24 minutes. I, I, the Russians, I played a little bit more. But yeah. uh, uh, most of our uh, exceptional players, and there were three or four <clears throat> there that I think stood above the rest, <clears throat> most of those people hardly ever played. Uh, we all played a little bit, not very much. Mm.
0: Um, did you get a chance to see some of the other sports while you were there I mean I know like Wilma Rudolph Rayford Johnson Cassius Clay I saw saw
1: them all oh you did Muhammad Ali was there wow uh, you know he was this character you could hear him walking around the Olympic Village (laughs) Um, uh, he had his he had his it it was like Dogs traveling uh, with their master, and he was throwing him, uh, you know, dog bones and stuff. He was yeah, yeah. he was amazing for a young kid, and yeah. obviously his career and uh, speaks for itself. But yeah. I saw all of them. I saw all the Americans over there who, you know, every some of these track and field people, you know, you hear only about the Americans. You didn't at that point in time. You didn't have all the information you have about. Sports throughout the world, and to see some of these names that were in Klieg lights, okay, uh, lose—it was amazing. Um, and uh, I'll never forget John Thomas, who was our high jumper. High jumper, yeah. Uh, high. Everyone was talking about him, and all you heard was the Russians had three guys <laughs> that could jump over seven feet. Three guys. Well, he came in third. Ooh. He came in third. And um, let's see, who was the sprinter for us? Uh, uh, oh, well. Well, I, I remember a guy from Germany won it. His name was Armand Hari, okay? Yeah. Armand Hari. Now, why I can remember that, I don't know. I was there you, and I was like stunned that- That somebody's moving well, like that. that. That they lost, stunned. Yeah. And everyone said that he <clears throat> that everyone said he cheated and you know started a race too soon. They proved they proved that his fast twitch muscles were as faster faster than anyone in the world, and he won yeah. the 100 meter dash. <laughs> uh, I do remember another funny story going over there, and at that point in time, they had these old uh, the new jets that were flying. We didn't get one of those. We were another one of those <laughs> twin prop Four yeah. <laughs> for engine. I think they call it strato liners or okay. something like that, and. I was sitting in the back of the plane and I weighed 172 pounds, and I was right be- between in the middle seat between two American shot putters. These guys <laughs> all weighed about so they kept the plane. They all weighed about oh 280 and I'm here <laughs> like this. Thank God. Uh, I never slept 1 minute going over there. Uh, they I was afraid you. I was afraid they were going to crush me in the middle. <laughs>
0: I wonder what it was like being Jerry West in 1960, a 22-year-old from a small town in West Virginia that had just returned to his home state after winning a gold medal in the Rome Olympic Games. The following day, he jumps on a plane and heads from West Virginia to Los Angeles, landing at LAX. The Lakers put the future of their franchise up in a seedy motel on Century Boulevard. Like, what is up with that? Then Jerry was off on a 15 day, 11 game, barnstorming style trip with the Boston Celtics. 11 games in 15 days against the same team. That's one way to get a rivalry started. Jerry West has always been on the side of civil rights and social equality. His teammates and friends were people who resonated most with them. One in particular was Elgin Baylor. Baylor was a high-flying forward out of Seattle University, the number one pick in the 1958 draft. Now Jerry, the number two pick in the 1960 draft, and Baylor, they formed a dynamic duo that took the Los Angeles Lakers to six NBA Finals in the 1960s, where they lost each and every time to those dreaded Boston Celtics. It was West and Baylor, and we can't forget the voice of the Los Angeles Lakers, Chick Hearn, who were the pillars of what would become the greatest franchise in sports history. Um, You've always been uh, a person who's been looking back on the right side of social justice and a genuine concern for for anybody. And I'm wondering, is that something that maybe was reinforced in the Olympic Village? I I, I kind of feel like the Olympics present an opportunity for young people many times (laughs) to see and feel things that they wouldn't normally uh, and, and they have a better sense of social justice when they came out on the other side
1: um I don't think that was the start of it for me but I was raised where you know you taught everyone treat you know you, you treated everyone the same yes or no sir thank you please. Mm-hmm. uh that was a big part of uh i think the most important part of me growing up mm-hmm. uh how you treat people how you interact with people but i think <clears throat> I think that Probably the greatest lessons I've ever learned in my life with regards to uh, race uh, was when I was playing. Mm. Uh, We had a number of uh, players that were black. And um, we would, after games end, there might be eight or 10 guys in one room. And I always seemed to resonate uh, and felt a closeness with two or three guys on that team and I just loved Elgin Baylor as a person. Mm-hmm. Okay, I absolutely loved him, admired him uh, for a lot of different reasons. But uh, sitting around talking, then it, it's you know you talk to guys who've gone to school for four years. Everyone had to go to school for four years, <clears throat> and I think there was a difference in uh, not the playfulness that athletes have with each other if you like each other, uh, but there was some kind of a. I love information. I sure. love to ask questions. And that was a perfect opportunity for me to ask questions about race. And mm-hmm. I got to have a better feeling, a better understanding. But um, I think the one thing that most people probably would never guess with me <coughs> is that I'm a huge reader, yeah. huge reader. And I love to read about, you know, people that I think are important in this world. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, Most of them at this point in my life have been about our black leaders uh, throughout the world. Um, I just got through reading a book uh, the other day because this has been so in the news about the uh, confirmation hearing of of the Barrett lady Mm -hmm. who is now on the Supreme Court. This one was Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, yeah. And if you read his story about him trying to be selected to the Supreme Court, you realize what an extraordinary human being he was, how smart he was, and for him to s- sit there and be grilled by people who were segregationists, okay? Yep. Being called everything except a human being. Mm-hmm. This was in 1958. Yeah. And people should read uh, about race. They should read about this this country. Uh, they should. in know, Jewish people have never. <clears throat> Let the Holocaust be forgotten. Yep. And I think there's today. There's so much more information of 400 oh, yeah. years of slavery. hmm And there's the new uh, muni- uh, uh, museum in D.C. And there's a one I think in Mississippi uh, have these horrible, horrible pictures. Yeah. Of the outrage that was perpetuated against the black men and women at that point in time sure every white person in this world should be made to go see those pictures yeah disgusting yeah it is uh, it's... and i just think that yeah i just think now when people seem to be much more in tune with um help finding a way to make a difference for all people uh, no one should be left behind. No we one. Rise. All rise. And everyone should, uh, uh, you know, embrace each other. I mean, a civility, where is civility going? I have no clue. Yeah. Uh, courtesy. I have no clue. Um, that's something I'll never change in my life. So uh, I
0: know. Uh, I, I, I won't, right? Because I got too much of my mother in me. Yeah. So this, that's not going to happen. Um, I felt like you you grew up a lot there, or had to, because you suddenly, you know, you're the number two pick in the draft, you find out you're you're still in Rome, and you find out your college coach is now going to be your pro coach, and that the franchise is moving to Los Angeles. That seems like a lot that gets dumped on you all of a sudden, but you said something like you found out reading Stars and Stripes. That's, that's how you right. found
1: out. Yeah, that's right. I read the stars that's and Stripes. So about that time it was like three or four pages, and you could find out what was going on. You're like, my you know, life today, is changing. Today, you can find out anything going sure. on. Sure, but I, I I didn't even find I didn't even find out I was drafted until the next day. Okay. Okay. And think what that would have been like today. Yeah. Oh my God, you know, um, it was. You know, it's really crazy because you know I think some people. Were you surprised that you were drafted number two? And honestly, no, I wasn't surprised. I was not was I surprised that Oscar Robertson went number one? No. Nope. No, I wasn't surprised. Nope. And are you supp- how are you supposed to react if you know that you're gonna get drafted there? How 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 do you know yes. And uh, you know, was it thrilling? I knew I was gonna get drafted. Sure. Uh I think the most thrilling thing about it was when I found out that we were gonna to move to to Los Angeles. That's
0: that's what I was wondering. Um, so you've you've now probably been to you know you, like you said you went to Kansas, you went to Chicago for the Pan Am, now Rome. Were you excited about coming to Los Angeles? Did were you okay with the big cities and all of that? Did you did you go wow Los Angeles that sounds interesting?
1: Well, I can remember Los Angeles then. It certainly wasn't like it is today. I'd love to hear this. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the only thing I remember when I first got here, I got back from, I got back from uh, Europe. I went to Charleston, West Virginia. The next morning, I get on a plane, fly to Los Angeles. So one day? Check in this little nasty motel on on Century Boulevard. By the airport? All the planes going overhead. (laughs) They picking me up at about two hours later and taking me, no, about four hours later, taking me to practice. Now look, I had gone from Europe to West Virginia to Los Angeles, get off of an airplane and practice one time and I, my chest was just burning. I said, "What in the world is this? I can't even breathe." It was smog. I had no idea. I had no idea, yeah. what, had no idea <laughs> yes. what smog was. was part of and then world. the next morning, getting up and going on a 13-day road trip, uh, 14 no, 15-day road trip to play the Boston Celtics mm. 11 exhibition games, 11 game exhibition games against one team. Well, at least you got out of the smog. Well, but you got to the point where you hated those guys. Almost every night after the first, yeah, right. after the first, what, nine games, there was a fight every
0: night. It was awful. In um, in L.A. in that time, the sports arena had just been built, I think, in 59. Yes. So it's a, it's a new building that you get to inhabit. And... Uh, I only knew the sports arena as a rundown place. Was it a nice, nice building? Do you enjoy it? Like, was it a? Well, it was did, beautiful, it beautiful? Did it stand it was, up better it, than you most? Know, of it are. was.
1: It was beautiful. Uh, you know, was, the seats were comfortable. As far as I knew, uh, I didn't know anything about arenas. The only thing I did was prance around the court out there. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go sit in the stand. Uh, but it was brand, it was brand new. And there was one unique feature there. They had a counter. Okay, they had a counter up in. The uh, up in the high up there, and every time someone came through that counter, counter, it showed. Right, yeah. And our first two regular season games we played against the New York Knicks, <clears throat> and it, uh, uh, I think the first night we had 4,800 4, plus. The next night, the next day, this was a Saturday and a Sunday, either Friday and Saturday or Saturday and Sunday. And uh, the next night, the, the next night, it was forty-two hundred and some. And all of them rooting for the Knicks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was yeah. a little bit different in West Virginia when you go out there, and, and everyone was. Everybody's on. Yeah. We did not lose a game on our home court in West Virginia and during then, my t- time there, three years. Did not lose one home game. Wow. You didn't. The referees would make sure of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: was um, when. I, okay, so you're in Los Angeles, and obviously the Rams had a head start on you and the Dodgers. Had probably just won a world a world series, so they're feeling good. They made you go out in cars to promote your, your the Lakers. Not Something cars,
1: like that? not cars, but what? trucks. It's like it was like a hay wagon. You get in the back and you go in a neighborhood and come to see us play, right? And I, <laughs> I would never say a word, okay, because I was so embarrassed. And it was embarrassing, frankly, to get behind that because in West Virginia. You couldn't even get in a game, and. Um, but uh, what
0: neighborhoods did they pick for oh, you? Oh, any people they could buy tickets. It was like
1: a your dog. You're running through every neighborhood, <laughs> hope someone will pat you. And, um, but it was a unique experience. Um, That's so. Um, and then to watch the Rams and Dodgers on the first page of the newspaper. that time, they had like three LA newspapers. Yeah. We were always in the last page. And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> who would have ever thought? A few years later, the they would, would be, be back play. there, and one of them would be gone from town.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: even the Dodgers wouldn't be on the first page. The yeah, Lakers is, were always on the first page.
0: When your first year or your second year, uh, I heard something like Baylor had to leave for a lot of games for his uh, military service. What Was he in the reserve Yeah, or he was,
1: uh, at that point in time, he was... Uh, uh, he was called up, and uh, he was up in, I think, Fort Hood. I think that's up in Washington or, yeah. or somewhere up there. And I'll never forget, we went up and practiced with him because uh, we were about to go into the playoffs, and uh, one of the funniest things there, there's a federal prison up there, and we went over to play like an exhibition game. Oh, my goodness. McNeil Island, maybe, is what okay. it was. Okay. Uh, a long time back. I hope that's right. And we go up there, and... Uh, it was pretty funny because I, I said to everyone, and I, I never said anything that was funny at all. I said to everyone, I said, look, you know, whoever loses has to stay. <laughs> but it was really interesting to go through there and to see, yeah, almost what we're feeling today. Because I feel, to some degree, we're being incarcerated today, and and uh, because of this virus, mm-hmm. and important to be that way, to be honest with you. Yeah and uh uh thank god we won
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you didn't have to stay it's one way to lose a team the um i know you're a big boxing fan huge and um the la scene which was, was pretty good in those days in the in the early 60s did you you know go to the olympic and and various things to watch some of your favorites
1: olympic, uh, olympic auditorium yeah. uh, i used to go down there i forget what night and then when an, when the forum was open i would go over there for they had a lot of big fights a lot of big fights but i would go to every fight if i were here uh, even when i was a kid uh, my my first hero was joe lewis okay, okay. my second one was ray robinson it Correct. wasn't athlete, it wasn't any other sport those were my two heroes and i got to know i got to know um joe just a little bit but ray mm-hmm. and i became Kinda of friendly. In the sum. Uh fantastic man. I just loved him and classy. Um, but uh that's a tough sport. He he, he was
0: he was ultimate cool.
1: He was Mr. Cool. He okay. Was really good. But yeah. he more no, he was just a great guy. He was a great
0: guy. Um between you and Baylor you had that you had these, you know, two dynamic players, but then Chick Hearn really helped ingratiate the Lakers in, and I, I felt like that helped you move off the back page a little bit because he was so unique in in his description of the game.
1: Yeah, he did. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, he was a huge um, piece of the growth of the Laker franchise, and in some respects, he was more popular. I guess very much like Ben Scully. Yeah. More popular than the players. Um, you know, a lot of nicknames, a lot of mm-hmm. chick-isms and. <laughs> Uh, you know, he'd always say on the air, he's in you know, my unbiased way. And I told him one night they had a they had kind of a, a dinner for him. They asked me to say something. And I said, This is the most unbiased, biased person I've ever know, <laughs> Which he was.
0: Yes. He was. Uh Will Chamberlain uh was another person I used to pretend like I was in my own backyard or when I was shooting on a hoop, I was always fascinated by him. And I gotta imagine um that was uh that had to be a, a fun time for you. Did he remember meeting you at all in Kansas? And no, then, no, no, I didn't go
1: to Kansas. I no, I thought
0: you went on a trip there? No, I did no. not go. I uh, went to Fort
1: Wayne, Indiana. Oh, I see. Okay, to meet oh, okay. the coach. I thought oh. I said that. Oh, right. yeah, I might, have,
0: I might have messed that one up. Okay. Well,
1: you, I probably did. <laughs> but um, <Okay>. any, anyway, <laughs> um, it was a unique time for me. And uh, uh, I, again, the only time I was associated with him when he came to the Lakers... Uh, as I mentioned, players, you know, you didn't associate with other players and other teams in because mm. of the way the schedule was devised, the traveling, which was, you know, which was you play, a lot of nights we played three nights in a row, a lot. A lot. And you would had to take the first available plane out mm. after the game. And uh, you didn't get a lot of sleep, but I've never been a huge sleeper in my life anyways. Mm. So,
0: I was uh, fortunate, um, my godfather was friends with Bill Sharman yes and he would uh take me along to loyola when you guys used to practice there and i would just sit sit there and get to watch you guys practice i'd you go get water i'd you know go shoot around a little bit (laughs) hope one of you guys would throw me the ball back right uh yeah and that was that was a great time for me and i would go back to um bill sherman's place in the marina del rey and get to hang out in his trophy room and i realized you know what a great athlete he was because i you know i didn't have that perspective on him um but i just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about bill sherman because i knew him a little bit later in life and he just seemed like such a gentleman and such a nice. Well, person. he
1: really nice, uh, a nice person, great competitor. He was a dirty player, and he still <laughs> he still denies it to this day. But they played for the Celtics. I think he was one of the notorious fighters in our league. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. And when he was young, he was he was a boxer. Okay, when he was young, okay. most people didn't know that. But there was a guy by the name of Andy Phillips. I think one year they got in eight fights, okay? but <laughs> Those two? Oh, yeah, those they two. And be- this was before my time in the league. <laughs> but um, Bill was a tough guy, great competitor. Uh, he was really a uniquely nice man. Yeah. I, I don't know anyone could ever say anything bad about him.
0: It, it, and is it true, I mean, there's a legend has it, that that's when he lost his voice was that 72 season? And did you guys see that coming? I mean, could you hear that coming rather or was that uh, something that happened after the season was over?
1: Well, you know, I think that it, it you know, it's really sometimes you get teams together that you really don't have to say very much. They mm-hmm. just sort of fit together. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you throw the ball over there and you know, you know the person's going to be there. Uh, sure. It just you're like tied together, mentally mm-hmm. you're tied together. And that was one of those teams that could do that. The only bad thing about it was, it was just too old. To can you know to perpetuate itself for any length of time, but it was sad for me uh, uh, when he got that way and uh, yeah. he got to the point where he had this megaphone where he's trying to you know to uh, uh, mm. to I guess make his vo- voice louder. Uh, but it was a, uh, a a sad time for me because I became really good friends with him. Yeah. Other than the fact that he was my coach, I just liked him personally.
0: Jerry West was a kid in West Virginia, not without challenges and pain. Looking to the top of the Blue Ridge Mountains, wondering what was on the other side.
1: And the people who find a way to get through that wall are gonna get to the top of the mountain. But once you get to the top of the mountain, it's dangerous.
0: As the number two pick in the 1960 NBA draft, Jerry was now playing for Jack Kent Cooke. Cooke had recently acquired the Lakers franchise, Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer, Jim Murray, described Cook as brash, assertive, and a megalomaniac. And that was his good side. The Canadian born Cook found himself in a dispute with the commission that ran the sports arena. So he purchased land in Inglewood right near LAX and he built his own arena, evoking the imagery of the Roman Forum. He changed the colors of the Lakers from blue and white to purple and yellow, colors which he referred to as Forum Blue and Gold. By 1967, the fabulous Forum was ready for business. The Forum's now a music-only venue, but for over 30 years, it was the greatest of all sports arenas. This place was exciting. Hollywood celebrities were attending games. Then in 1968, the Lakers acquired Wilt Chamberlain. The Lakers, with West, Baylor, and now the Big Dipper became the sports franchise Of Los Angeles. But then two more excruciating NBA final losses to the Celtics happened in 68 and 69, despite heroic performances by West. In fact, Jerry was the MVP of the 69 NBA series, despite yet again being on the losing team. West is the only player ever to be an MVP from a second place team in both the NCAA tournament and the NBA finals. In 1970, the Lakers lost in the finals, again. This time in seven games to the New York Knicks. Wait, what? Yep, the Knicks used to be really good, like 50 years ago. 1971-72 would be different. Bill Sharman was the new coach and he adjusted the players' roles. West would lead the NBA in assists that year, dropping 10 dimes a game while still scoring 25 points per game. or. Three, two, two It's over. <laughs> you can see that coming. You know he's gonna get the two. Oh yeah. When the fabulous Forum hosted the NBA All-Star Game at midseason, who do you think made the game-winning shot and took home the MVP trophy? West. Jerry West. West.
1: So a man named West wins it for the West. Final score. The West 112. The East. 110 from the Forum in Los Angeles,
0: California. The Lakers would then go on to win an NBA record of 33 games in a row. They compiled another record with a 69 and 13 regular season mark, stormed their way into the NBA Finals, where this time, they would win it all. They easily dispatched the New York Knicks in five games. has seven seconds left, and the Los Angeles Lakers are the world champions of basketball.
1: The Lakers conclude their basketball season with a record of 81 victories and
0: only 16 defeats. If you would have asked me before the season started, could that ever be done by any team, I would have thought that you were crazy. After 12 years in the league and seven losses in the NBA Finals, Jerry West ran off the court at the Fabulous Forum, an NBA champion. West retired in 1974, then he coached the Lakers with success and ultimately became general manager. Wes assembled the Showtime Lakers, led by Magic and Cream, that won five NBA championships. Then in 1996, he had the greatest summer of any executive in NBA history. That summer, he signed Shaq and drafted Kobe, setting the Lakers up for five more championships. By 2000, the Lakers had moved back to downtown LA, setting up shop at Staples Center. West left the Lakers in 2002 and went to work for the Memphis Grizzlies, turning them into a playoff team. In 2011, he moved to the Golden State Warriors, and by 2015, they were the NBA champions. He joined the LA Clippers in 2017 and has set them on a path towards an NBA title. It is hard to think of any one person who has achieved as much as Jerry West has in the sport of basketball. He won the West Virginia High School State Championship, took the West Virginia University Mountaineers to the NCAA Finals, won a gold medal in Rome, and led the Lakers to nine NBA Finals in 14 years. Okay, so I watched a fair amount of replays to get a perspective from now of you playing. And it seems to me that you would have a much higher scoring total had the three-point line been in play. But you obviously didn't have that in your mind then because it wasn't a thing, but it was a thing in the ABA. So we're, you're probably aware that there's a three-point line? Well, that
1: was after, yes. But that, that was after I started it was stop playing, oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you know I think the consolidation of the two leagues at that point in time is what you see in the NBA today. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would tell you, they had some great things that would, I think, uh, uh, that really helped the NBA, the three-point line. So too made it a more attractive game. Um, There were some players that didn't get drafted at that point in time that uh, belonged in the league. Yeah. And uh, when they were assimilated into the NBA, uh, it's start of the modern-day game as we see it. Um, Yeah. I often wondered, because they had a red, white, and blue basketball, (laughs) I often wondered. I thought that was really kind of cool visually to see. So did I. (laughs) I often wondered why they didn't do that. Yeah, um, but they
0: took, they should have took that over with it.
1: Now it would look weird. Okay? It,
0: it would, but you know they did it in volleyball. You know, there's a lot of uh multiple national organizations that actually use the red, white, and blue ball in volleyball to enhance oh, yeah. that. Well, and it's interesting how the vision uh, can play out. When um you were playing, you had that a uh, unique way of getting your jumper off, and it would come, and I, I you know, would tell everybody, "I go, you got to watch tape on Jerry West. It's going to go bam, bam." and it's up, and it's up, and it's high, and it's gone before you can really play defense. It would seem like most of the league knew this was coming, but you still were able to get your shot off all the time. What, what, you know, Tell me the how you uniquely brought that into your game. Well,
1: one of the most important things in shooting is to use your legs, okay? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, people, that last hard dribble makes you set, okay? It makes you set. And by doing that, you automatically use your legs. And the mm. other, the other thing, the other okay. thing is, is that I used to practice that in college all the time. I scratch myself. I have still a couple scratch marks on my face because I wanted to get it up uh-huh. here. Uh-huh. And by doing it, you have to. You really have to practice that because if you don't practice correctly, you can. And, and you know, the one quick motion where you, everything mm. in shooting is a lever anyway. Uh, But I practiced that a lot when I was in college. And um, it was just something that came natural for me. You know, the other thing is to learn to shoot the ball different heights with bigger people on you. And you did that by just a different release point. But those are things I played around with uh, growing up. And um, I wish I'd had all the tools then and uh, the time uh, to have Places to go practice. You couldn't do that even yeah, in college. Yeah, but what's
0: your off seasons like in high school and college, where you, you just would shoot by yourself on a hoop.
1: Well, as I say, and had no one there with you. When I was and going to no when I was going to school, I would because I had no nothing to do at home, uh, uh, no opportunity to make any extra money. So mm-hmm. I worked at the university. I had uh, work for the buildings and grounds. I think we made like two fifty or three fifty mm-hmm. an hour. And there's sometimes oh, that I was in charge of watching the gymnasium, but it was so hot in there, <laughs> hot and humid, Still you'd it's. go in there and you'd shoot for 15 minutes. And the worst part of it was if you would miss, and particularly if you're shooting one side of the basket, <laughs> and you'd miss, uh, I would deliberately, if I were going to miss it, I didn't want to miss it long because so I had a long run. <laughs> so, actually, it was a drill that really helped me shoot and follow the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see very many players do that today. I, I would agree We with don't that. see that. That'd and that like... really was a drill that shoot and follow the ball because you're the one who knows it's going to miss, and particularly if you're a good shooter. If you're a bad shooter, you'd be running all over the place and never, you'd be dead after about 20 minutes of shooting.
0: Coach Wooden, uh, I think um, I they just kind of reminded me uh, of that when you when you said shoot and follow the ball because he always felt like about crashing the boards, and and he, he you know and his players did that well but I, when, what was, was your relationship more concurrent to when you were uh, still playing for the Lakers or did you know Coach Wooden after you had, had kind of retired and moved towards coaching?
1: No, I used to have lunch with him often in Westwood, <laughs> a little drugstore over there. My yeah. uh, his friend and late my late, late friend Hollis Johnson. Uh, we used to go to this little drugstore there and he had a drug counter and we'd go in back and we would eat we'd have these little tiny not stools but they were actually um boxes okay that fruit and stuff came in and he had this little table there and and right. i used to have the same thing every day uh, what was it a turkey sandwich uh with um uh with a cup of chicken noodle soup okay and John, I forget what he would order, but that was usually a lot. That was most of the time on the day of the game. Okay. And I got to the point where I hardly ate um, day of the game. I mm. just couldn't eat. I'd get sick before the games and didn't want to be throwing up all over the place. Yeah. Too, much, too much adrenaline. Yeah, too much going. But John was a unique man. He was yes. he was more than a basketball coach. He was yes. kind of a life teacher, um, yes. someone I had great respect for. And, um I remember one time we were playing UCLA in college here in Los Angeles in a Christmas turn- tournament. Oh, okay. And uh, UCLA had a good team. And, and uh, at West Virginia, we had one of the best teams in the country. And I'll never forget, I never said a word to officials, never. And it was at the sports arena. It was my mm-hmm. first experience playing there. And little did I know that my professional career would end up was going to go there. But what was funny about it is that I made a layup and I, this guy hit me in midair, and I ended up on the concrete floor. They didn't have any padding or a bunch right. of people there to catch you. And I was w- running back, uh, sort of walking back, because the ball went went through the net and it bounced away. And I said to the official, I think you missed that call. And John, John said to me, he says, young man, you're too good to complain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said so nice. something to him that I can't repeat. Okay. Okay. On this on this program. Yes. And I wonder, I used to wonder all the time, did he remember that one incident? Got a feeling. It did. wasn't a good word. I got a feeling he okay.
0: did. I got a feeling he remembered. He has a good memory. Yeah. Uh, he
1: had a great memory. A great um,
0: I, I forget if you don't mind. It just always cracks me up. Um, I think you're sitting in his condo or something and you're looking at his championship teams up there and mm-hmm. he's trying to console you uh you know he said do you always take all the credit when you win you know because you, you seem to take a lot of the blame when you lose and he said something to the effect of...
1: uh, i'm not forget what I said. so
0: i think you said something like i don't see any of your second place teams up on the wall <laughs> that, <laughs> that one right. cracked me up and he well, goes he did, you know what well, he, did,
1: he didn't lose very much okay <laughs> and i'm always you know, one of the things that's it's really interesting in life when people win all the time people expect them to win all the time. Yeah. They expect them to win. And I think you really find the true character of someone when they lose. I've always said the best stories are not in winning locker room. Mm-hmm. they in the struggle. Um, the heartbreak, the, yeah, I
0: think the so.
1: little things that go on. Uh, there's more great stories in a losing locker room than there is in a winning locker room, by yeah, far.
0: I think so. There's um three things i think were kind of underrated um your defense i i've always appreciated it i always thought it was excellent and your ability to adapt in the game the fact that you led the league in assist um in like the 72 or something you adapted your game for the best part of of what it will be and i also thought you were underrated as a coach i didn't think the lakers had a great roster when you took over um but we you had found a terrible a way. we had a, yeah. not
1: a great roster yeah. a roster with one great player abdul jabbar that was it and uh, probably the most enjoyment I ever got there, they hadn't made the playoff for three years with Bill as a coach, and and, uh, and I said to our players, uh, and Bill wanted to play a fast game. I said, we can't play a fast game and win. I said, we have to play a defensive game. Ball low post. And he he was, Kareem just carried his team offensively. We won more games than anyone in the league my first year as a coach. Yeah. I should have stopped there. for one,
0: <laughs> No,
1: for for one reason. We had another good year. Uh, We had a really good year the second year with a bunch of injuries. And the reason I should have stopped there was I wasn't fit to be a coach. I really wasn't for one reason. I expected players in the most awkward time this NBA had ever gone through. A lot of problems with players. That was an awkward time, huh? It was horrible, as it was all over the world and yeah. I expected players to be like me in terms of just playing the game uh, off the court. Uh, you need know, to mm-hmm. take care of yourself. Uh, that was a problem for the league, man, and I should have walked away after my second year. But uh, I had two men, uh, Jack McCloskey and Stan Albach, uh, who yeah. were unbelievably Im- Great important nights. for me. Um, managing games wasn't hard for me. That wasn't the hard part. Um, I could tell you how to play defense because that's the only thing that I felt that I knew. Scoring offensively, I I never really felt, and this is not braggadocious. I, I never felt that I needed an offense to score. I, I felt I could score pretty much or get a good shot when In I wanted to, or something. And it? so. You have to understand that Abdul Jabbar, you could run anything for him. He's still going to score. But you also ha- had to put him in a position where everyone we wasn't ganging up on him. And he was just. One of those incredible play, uh, players that no one ever talked about I, when they're talking about I, greatness I, as a player. That,
0: you and I agree on this 100%. And it, I always stand up for him. He should be in the conversation. Any conversation you have about the greatest players, he should be right there. He sure he, should. He, the object of the game is to score more points. He scored the most points by far. And he's. Um, you look at his success all the way through his life too, from <laughs> high school to college. And then well, in the he NBA? Was, he's been, you know
1: what? I, I think that he made the game look so easy, but mm. but again, he was one of those guys that never talked about how he played. He never he never come he, he never patted himself on the back. Uh, you know, he's brilliant, smart. Uh he's someone I greatly admire. I really do.
0: I think um I and I compare him on some levels to you as far as a post playing career. Um I think your post playing even coaching career has been remarkable. And so is his, and his continues to be with the books he's written, op-ed pieces he writes. He's a great thinker. Um, I I compared, like, going and watching basketball and trying to evaluate who's the best player, stuff like there. If if I were to take you to a game, be like taking a a Monet or something to an art gallery, they're going to see something totally different than what I see. And I'm just curious, um, what are those, or can you... You put your finger on what those things are that you see about a player during these workouts that, that you think is different. What are the different things you look for? I know like long arms, you're talking about long fingers, you're talking about different things, but I'm just curious, what is it that that catches you?
1: Well, the greatest skill that anyone can have, the greatest skill, is a workout. Mm. And some players can't play an 82-game schedule. They can't do it. And uh, the other thing is, is that um, is that some people you just they're so uniquely skilled, and it, it's effortless looking. It doesn't look like it's it look like it's easy for them. And those are the things that stand out most to me. The shooting part of it, you can see it. Can a kind of guy does he have the skill? Does he have the quickness? Does he have the anticipation? All those factors go into it, but. Um, and confidence Mm. you know and i'm not talking about false confidence i'm Mm -hmm. not talking about someone i can do this i can do that i watch these a lot of kids get drafted today and you know it's like almost a storyboard of Hmm. what they're going to do and Hmm. they're they're coached of course and then you see some kids that leave school early that have no careers and you feel sorry for them yeah you feel sorry for them because they've been pushed into the draft when one year more year in school might have made all the difference in the world for them being successful, and basically a failure.
0: Um, I think uh, there's there's one thing I want to ask you about. Uh, I I think that's well told story about the Kobe workout and so forth. But I was wondering um, if there's anybody else you sh- you in effect f- felt like that for, and in effect shut down a workout. I know Sonny Vaccaro would say I gotta I'm gonna shut down this. I'm gonna do a Jerry West and shut down the workout because I don't want him to know I'm interested. Or something. Anybody else you um, you felt like, okay, I gotta no, go. I gotta go, go make a deal.
1: Just, you know, every once in a while you see a unique player. Yeah. Okay, and he was truly unique at an early age. Very, very skilled. Uh, the obviously thing he needed was schooling and learning how to play in an a system, and that wasn't uh, that wasn't his uh, uh, that yeah. wasn't what was going to be early for him. He needed a, a chance to play the game unencumbered with uh, Eddie Jones around, who I personally talked to Jerry Buss about and said we need to trade him because we cannot let Kobe Bryant sit on the bench anymore. Mm-hmm. And he agreed and we did that and his career took off and uh, he became the player that um, yeah. that people admire so dearly
0: around the world. Um, I just want to give you credit, I think Vladi Divac was one of the first foreign players that was identified and brought in and never did I get a kick out of that guy more than watching Jim Hill. Um, interview him after while he was having a smoke with his shirt out in the locker room and I thought who is this and that guy could pass like nobody else and he played the big man game
1: well, he was good he was really good you know he was at times I think he would paid a little bit more attention to his to his uh, uh, conditioning and took a lot more serious he's just a natural player and um, uh, he, he, yeah. he's a great guy too on top of it
0: uh, um I got a few questions I want to ask you at the end, but I didn't want to. I wanted to cover something. Wilson ball's coming back instead of the Spalding um, ball. And I think you played probably with the Wilson most of your career. I
1: have no cre- idea. It's a round uh-huh. ball, it's going to have. <laughs> It's going to have some sort of curvature to it. Um, it won't make any difference in the okay. world because there's certain specifications, <laughs> and it's all about money.
0: Yeah, and it's a short turnaround for the players. I thought that was interesting. It won't make any difference. I um, know the difference. Uh, tell me about golf. What do you like about golf, That or what challenges you that keeps you coming back in golf? Uh, get away
1: from my wife and I'll... <laughs> <laughs> just as just as most no actually I, I have a group of older people that I really enjoy being around and and uh it's a lot of camaraderie a lot of kidding a lot of uh, yeah. nasty words uh <laughs> that are locker room words okay yeah. um that that are truly locker room <laughs> words and uh I enjoy the camaraderie okay uh, I don't nice. yeah. I don't play very well, often so I only play with a group one group of guys and that's it
0: I'll be sure to cover the, I, know, I think you held a course record at some place, which is nice. And I was kind of wondering if you knew you were closing in on the course record at Hillcrest or somewhere? Did you even know that? Was it a memory in no, your mind?
1: I, that was years ago. I can't remember. <laughs> okay. I used to I used to shoot some low scores. Yes, I did.
0: Uh, your daughter-in-law, Michelle Wee, mm-hmm. um, do you, I would imagine you played with her. And um, have you learned anything from her approach to the game?
1: I, I know she's really good. I mean, i tell you that. She <laughs> yeah, I just, think so. She played with Steph Curry, my son Johnny, who is his wife, yeah. and another good golfer. And 7,400-yard and course just a couple of days ago, she shot, I think, 75 or 76 Yikes. from 7,400 yards. And she hasn't wow. played any. She has a bad injury. And she beat everybody by a bunch of strokes, okay? It's a hard course. and she Wow. Shot. But I would expect that she's going to come out and start playing again soon. They just had their baby and uh, a beautiful kid. And Congratulations. Fun. And uh, she's uh, she's going to do the Masters this week. She's going to do the commentary on oh the, my the Masters oh, that's, this week that's nice. from our house. So she's a, she's a very accomplished young lady.
0: All right, a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Pet? Uh, did you have a pet when you were a child? I'm sorry? Did you have a pet? Did a what? pet? Like, did you have a pet when you were a child? No. No uh, offense. How about, um, what did you know of any pro sports team when you were a kid that you could heard on the radio that you like besides the boxers?
1: Well, if it would come in on any particular day, uh, uh, I, I used to listen to the Cleveland Browns mm. and also the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians if you could get it on the
0: radio. Favorite uh, musical group that you like from any time or uh, of all time?
1: Uh, I really don't know, but I, there's one fame, there's one artist who uh, I think is the most underrated artist, George Michael. Uh, nice. I, I just think he has an be. incredible voice. Yeah. Uh, also uh, a big fan of Barbara Streisand's. Uh, you have a movie that sticks out in your mind? Yeah, Apocalypse Now.
0: Nice. I just watched it actually recently. Um, I got a question for you. You and Michelle, we in a card game of gin... Who wins that one?
1: Well, you know, if she's, if she, unless she can't count, she kills me. Probably.
0: <laughs> How about you and her in golf?
1: Um, no contest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, would you rather, if you could time travel, go to see Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling fight in the second fight, or Jake LaMotta uh, and Sugar Ray Robinson in their third fight? When, Jay, when Sugar Ray got e- off the deck and beat him. Either either one would work fine. I have one um, last question. Do you um, you make the shot at the end of your book? Because I love that story about all of the guys from all of the time that joined together and play uh, at Madison Square Garden. That's a fun story. Who, me? Yeah, you make that shot at the end? Of course. OK, good. So it's a good pick from uh, Shaq you got where you rubbed off. <laughs> nice. <laughs> No,
1: I just, there's one thing that's really interesting about life. I think uh, regardless of where you come from, uh, regardless of the sport and everything, so much of life's um, success is based on what's inside of you. Uh, You can overcome any obstacles. Everyone's gonna run into a lot of walls and the people who find a way to get through that wall are gonna get to the top of the mountain. But once you get to the top of the mountain, it's dangerous. You see another mountain over there, but look over your shoulder, and there's some very competitive people coming at you. So mm-hmm. you just, you can't continue in this world unless you have goals. Mm-hmm. And I've always had goals in my life. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: It was very nice of you. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Taking into account West play from high school to college through the Olympics and the pros, he averaged an astounding 25 points per game while often ranking among team leaders in rebounds, assists, steals, and block shots. A collegiate and professional hall of fame inductee, his statue proudly stands outside Staples Center and his number 44 hangs from the rafters. And his image became the logo of the NBA. He's among the most respected players and executives in the history of sports. This kid from West Virginia wonder what was over the mountain, and look what he's accomplished.